Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. Jenny and I continue our conversation on the introduction to G.K. Chesterton's Everlasting Man. Okay, you mentioned this portion of the book before. That attitude, I think that you would agree and have lots to say yourself on this, but I'm going to say it again. An iconoclast may be indignant, an iconoclast may be justly indignant, but an iconoclast is not impartial. And it is stark hypocrisy to pretend that nine-tenths of the higher critics and scientific evolutionists and professors of comparative religion are in the least impartial. Yes. This is exactly where I wanted to go on this. Yeah, Yeah. this is exactly where you went with the Christian atheists. Right. So interrupt at any point. Yep. Why should they be impartial? What is being impartial when the whole world is at war about whether one thing is a devouring superstition or a divine hope? Right. And this is where we are on this question. Yeah. With the new atheists and the Christians trying to maintain, well, some of the Christians, trying to maintain a different viewpoint. Yeah. Because Christianity, it's either what they say and it's a blight on the world. Mm-hmm. And I think the evidence for that is pretty paltry mm-hmm. and badly conceived. Right. Or it is a divine hope. Yeah. And that's where the battle line is drawn. Right. Right. And we see those on the other side, as Chesterton makes the point here, the critics. And that's what I would point to more than anything else in this in this in, <laughs> in this, this note, introduction. This, right, in this introduction, the critics. The critics are carping, criticizing on everything that they can find. Mm-hmm. And it's not that there's nothing to find about Christians and Christianity through history to critique. Right. There's plenty there. Right, right. We're not perfect and we never have been. But does that critique fall on Christ? Or do we actually have a divine hope that redeems the world, that lifts the world Mm -hmm. in the Christian religion? That we can look beyond, we can look beyond the people and look to Mm -hmm. Um, the imperfect people. And I, I love what he says here. He says, look, I may not be completely impartial. And he says, actually, that wouldn't be surprising because I am a Christian and I think that's the right view. Well, he... I was just going to read that. It says, I do not pretend to be impartial in the sense that the final act of faith fixes a man's mind because it satisfies his mind. But I do profess to be a great deal more impartial than they are in the sense that I can tell the story fairly with some sort of imaginative justice to all sides and they cannot. Right. And they cannot. And I can't help again. But think of the Mount Ebal critics, right. particularly Robert, Robert Cargill. Cargill and, right. yeah. and to a lesser extent, although pro- maybe Chris, it's not really a lesser extent, although he just does it in a nicer does, way. Yeah. Chris, Rolston, Chris Ralston, yeah. Right? They are opposed to the Christian worldview. Right. And they pretend to be impartial. Right, right. And right. because they pretend to be impartial, they are not impartial. Mm-hmm. And Chesterton, a Christian, can be, not all Christians are, but a Christian can be more impartial than they can because at least they're willing to face their partiality, their preconceptions, their faith, Mm -hmm. whereas the critics are not willing to do that. No. So he goes on to say, I do profess to be impartial in the sense that I should be ashamed to talk such nonsense about the Lama of Tibet. 
as they do about the Pope of Rome, or to have as little sympathy with Julian the Apostate as they have with the Society of Jesus. They are not impartial, they never by any chance hold the historical scales even, and above all, they are never impartial upon this point of evolution and transition. They suggest everywhere the gray gradations of twilight, because they believe it is the twilight of the gods. I propose to maintain that whether or no it is the twilight of gods, it is not the daylight of man. Yes, and and I love that point, Mm -hmm. and it plays into C.S. Lewis's myth of evolution. And also another essay we did this season mm-hmm. on the poison of subjectivism. That's right. Yeah. Which makes the point that in our world, everything is relative. In other words, there are no radical boundaries set. Everything is a gray, a gradation of white and black, but there are no stark boundaries. Yeah, right. This is in direct opposition to the view of Christianity, of the Judeo-Christian culture, of theism, of God. God set kinds. He set boundaries. And outside of those boundaries is something else. But when everything grades into everything else, which Mm -hmm. is that theory of evolution, that everything is just one version or another of an earlier thing, Mm -hmm. right? Life just sort of gradually happened. It came to be. And then all the various versions of life are just different versions of that same thing. This is Hegelianism. Yeah. Clear and simple. Hegelianism turns into the evolutionary view, which turns all of life and all of existence into the same thing. Human beings are not different from the apes. We are just apes that have changed and grown better and And followed the process. That's and, something that you pointed right, out in your in your graduate class. Right. And it is exactly what Chesterton is pointing out here. And it's what he's coming out against. He's saying that no, when you look honestly at these things, there are radical boundaries established. Human beings are not animals in the sense that one blends slowly into the other. We are a radical departure, a bounded thing that is separate from the animals. And likewise, he wants to say in this book, particularly the second book of this everlasting man, the religion of Christianity is a radically different thing from all other religions on the face of the planet. And this fundamental distinction on both of these sides is what the modern critics want to deny. The relativists, the Hegelians, the Marxists, the scientism people, rather than recognizing the evidence that points elsewhere. Okay, so picking up right where you left off, Uh Chesterton says this, I maintain that when brought out into the daylight, these two things look altogether strange and unique and that it is only in the false twilight of an imaginary period of transition that they can be made to look in the least like anything else. The first of these is the creature called man, and the second is the man called Christ. Now that Mm -hmm. is a particularly Chestertonian way of stating things. Exactly. Right? And I do love his 
aphoristic moments when yeah. he says something like that. He is making the case that man stands out as a supernatural thing against the background of nature. Yeah. And that Jesus Christ stands out as a supernatural manifestation on the background of man. Right. Right. And then he goes into this rather extended example that I don't want to spend too much time on about the horse. Right. And chivalry. But let me just pick up towards the end of that and make a few last points in this introductory section. In this example, he says, which I have taken merely because it is an example. It yeah. will be noted that I do not say that the nightmare seen by the first man of the forest is either more true or more wonderful than the normal mare of the stable seen by the civilized person who can appreciate what is normal. And he's talking here about seeing a horse as a civilized person. Yeah. In the old days when horses were considered noble creatures, especially as they interacted with human beings, human beings raised the horse right. to the level of the human. Right. In a similar way, Jesus Christ raises man to the level of the divine. Right. right? And so, Chesterton. and so, right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so Chesterton <laughs> is making the point here that something important happens when we understand the connection between two things at that really important level of connection, but that when we lose the connection, when we start graying them out, as we do in the Hegelian yeah. world, in the scientism world, right. where things are simply gradations of each other and there is no distinction to be made. So he says, of the two extremes, I think on the whole that the traditional grasp of truth is the better. But I say that the truth is found at one or other of these two extremes and is lost in the intermediate condition of mere fatigue and forgetfulness of tradition. In other words, I say it is better to see a horse as a monster than to see it only as a slow substitute for a motor car. If we have got into that state of mind about a horse as something stale, it is far better to be frightened of a horse because it is a good deal too fresh. Now, as it is with the monster that is called a horse, so it is with the monster that is called man. Of course, the best condition of all, in my opinion, is always to have regarded man as he is regarded in my philosophy. He who holds the Christian and Catholic view of human nature will feel certain that it is a universal and therefore a sane view and will be satisfied. But, he says, and this is the position of the critics in the Western culture today, mm -hmm. carping at Christianity. If he has lost the pose to strike whatever possible this note of what is new and strange, and for that reason, the style, even on so serious a subject, may sometimes be deliberately grotesque and fanciful. I do desire to help the reader to see Christendom from the outside, in yeah. the sense of seeing it as a whole. And there's that boy wandering away from his farm, looking for the giant, and then looking back and seeing the giant as part of his right. farm. Right. against the background of other historic things, just as I desire him to see humanity as a whole, against the background of natural things. 
And I say that in both cases, when seen thus, they stand out from their background like supernatural things. And this is a point I have made throughout the Christian atheist. When we look at the nature of man, when we look at the nature of human rational consciousness as manifesting all of those characteristics of rationality, such as morality, a consciousness of beauty, the ability to create beauty, to love, all of those things are unique right. to the human being, to a human rational structure. And in that sense, it is unnatural. It is the supernatural invading the natural realm. Right. And even science today recognizes that, even when they try to deny it, because they make a distinction between the natural and the artificial. Right. And what is the artificial other than that which humanity has mixed its rational nature with? Exactly. Right. And then he goes on. But in order to see them clearly, we have to see them as a whole. Right. We need critical distance. We need to be able to back off. And stop looking at it at the level at which the critics are trying to carp against it. We need them to back off and see Christianity and man as natural, surprising beings against the background of the rest of nature. Anyone thinking of what might have happened may conceive a sort of evolutionary equality. But anyone facing what did happen must face an exception and a prodigy. And this is how he ends this introduction. If there was ever a moment when man was only an animal, we can, if we choose, make a fancy picture of his career transferred to some other animal. But if we are considering what did happen, we shall certainly decide that man has distanced everything else with a distance like that of the astronomical spaces and a speed like that of the still thunderbolt of mm -hmm. the light. Mm -hmm. Men are not animals. There is a difference in kind, not just a difference in quantity. It's not a matter of gray. It's a matter of black and white. And I would be quite willing to defend that proposition and have throughout my career, even as a, an atheist, I would defend that position. So that ends the introductory points. Yeah, and I think, do you think maybe we should go into chapter one a little bit? Sure, we can do that. We yeah. have some time. <laughs> Just because it's kind of, this is kind of a really good talk. Yes. A really good discussion. So Chesterton begins chapter one, the man in the cave saying this partway through the first paragraph, which reminds me of some of the things you've just said. Okay. That at least is the way in which I should begin a history of the world if I had to follow the scientific custom of beginning with an account of the astronomical universe. I should try to see even this earth from the outside, not by the hackneyed insistence of its relative position to the sun, but by some imaginative effort to conceive its remote position for the dehumanized spectator. Only I do not believe in being dehumanized in order to study humanity. I do not believe in dwelling upon the distances that are supposed to dwarf the world. I think there is even something a trifle vulgar about this idea of trying to rebuke spirit by size. 
And as the first idea is not feasible, that of making the earth a strange planet so as to make it significant, I will not stoop to the other trick of making it a small planet in order to make it insignificant. Right, which is what modern science constantly tries to do Mm -hmm. for us. Yep. I would rather insist that we do not even know that it is a planet at all in the sense in which we know that it is a place and a very extraordinary place too. That is the note which I wish to strike from the first, if not in the astronomical, then in some more familiar fashion. Right. And this reminds me of a phrase from the introduction that we didn't go over. Yeah. What was that? It says this. For in connection with things so great, that is, the nature of man Mm -hmm. and the nature of Christ, in connection with things so great as are here considered, whatever our view of them, contempt must be a mistake. And that's the position that critics always take. Right, right. And then he says this, we must invoke the most wild and soaring sort of imagination. The imagination that can see what is there. And if you remember my series on the evident evidence and faith, Mm -hmm. I made the point that the evident is that which is given to us at the most intimate level of our rational being Mm -hmm. as we consider the world, as it's given to us. And that is precisely what Chesterton is here advocating for, to return us to that level of understanding instead of the rationalized picture that we've created that distorts that reality. And in the particular, in chapter one, he's talking about the scientific view of the caveman that we've developed. Right, right, right. (laughs) And then (laughs) you have to love his humor. Yes, he is. Just let me just take a second to read this one part here. One of my first journalistic adventures or misadventures concerned a comment on Grant Allen, who had written a book about the evolution of the idea of God. I happened to remark that it would be much more interesting if God wrote a book about the evolution of the idea of Grant Allen. And I remember that the editor objected to my remark on the ground that it was blasphemous, which naturally amused me not a little, for the joke of it was, of course, that it never occurred to him to notice the title of the book itself, which really was blasphemous, for it was, when translated into English, I will show you how this nonsensical notion that there is a God grew up among men. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. So, go ahead. I do love Chesterton Mm -hmm. because... At one level, he never takes himself seriously. Yeah. He's always playing with things right, and right. having fun. Right. And I love that about him. In The Christian Atheist for this week, mm-hmm. I read an article that I pulled at random on oh, the question, right. why do the experts always get, get things wrong. wrong? Right, right. And it was a Forbes article. And I, I guess... <laughs> I apologize for repeating myself here, yeah, that's but okay. I think it's probably worth reading here. One section of the article says this, one of the things that makes experts so convincing is that they exude confidence. They can talk calmly and knowledgeably about a subject, make reference to relevant facts, and build a compelling logic for their case. A good expert is always impressive, but still usually wrong. In fact, in a 20-year study of political experts, Philip Tetlock found that their predictions were no better than flipping a coin. 
Further, he found that pundits who specialized in a particular field tended to perform worse than those whose knowledge was more general. This is so counterintuitive that it hardly seems possible, but it's true. The reason lies in the confidence of the predictions. Specialists, with their deep knowledge of a particular subject, tend to not incorporate information outside their domain, which makes for a cleaner, more definitive storyline. And this is the reason I wanted to read this. Mm-hmm. Non-experts, with their broad-based knowledge, are less sure of themselves. In other words, like Chesterton, I say, they're playing with things. Right, right, right. They also tend to be right more often. And this confusion, more often than not, trumps certainty. And you always get the sense with Chesterton that he is convinced of what he's saying, but that he is open to the possibilities of thinking about these things in a multitude of ways. He is literally playing as he writes, and he exudes not that sense of arrogant confidence that the experts so often exude, Mm -hmm. but rather a sense of confident play, that he's got the right position and that he's hoping he's presenting things in a way in which the truth is coming to the fore. And same way with Lewis. It's like they're, Definitely the same they're way settled. With Lewis. They're yes. completely settled. Right. And they're confident, but they're not right. arrogant. But there's the, well, that's what I'm saying. They're confident, but they're settled. Yes. They don't need to be arrogant. Right. Right. Yeah, but because they're not threatened right. by the opposition. Exactly. And it's exactly. Because they're settled within themselves. Right. It's exactly what I said. Oh, my goodness. All the way back in like the first series, yeah, through the Looking Glass, when I said I finally I'm I'm here, right? Nothing's going to shake this anymore, right? Let the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune be thrown. Mm-hmm. I stand with Christ now, mm-hmm. and whatever comes, let it come. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, you, you have a a settled what would you say a settled faith. Settled faith. Which and it is faith. You didn't have before right. when you walked away. Right. Okay, so we better, we got to get out of chapter one because we'll end up doing all of chapter one. So okay. I'm just going to, <laughs> I'll finish it off by, by this. So anyway, here's what reminds me of what you are saying in your, you ready? Uh-huh. JDP slash Mountain Ball slash Lewis essay series. <laughs> <laughs> you said that very quickly. Yes, I did it. <laughs> so Chesterton says this. But evolution really is mistaken for explanation. It has the fatal quality of leaving on many minds the impression that they do understand it and everything else. Mm -hmm. Just as many of them live under a sort of illusion that they have read the origin of species. See if this sounds, this is what I'm talking about. See if this sounds like Ralston, Cargill, and all the others who do understand it and everything else. Yes. (laughs) Yep, they've got it nailed down. Right. And that's what you've been trying to point out in your series. Yep. And one of the points about evolution is that they assume because they can say, oh, it took an, a, a, an incredibly long amount of time, that that explains it. But that doesn't explain it. Just stretching it out over time does no more to explain it than if it were right here in front of us seeking an explanation. Time itself does not explain the origin of something. I think, doesn't he say that? 
Does he say that in chapter oh, yeah. seven at the end of chapter seven, or was this the rest of chapter one? I think it's somewhere in chapter one. Okay, all right, all right. It sounds familiar. Okay. Do you have anything else you want to add, or can we? I don't think so. I think we better stop because yep. we're going to end up doing all of chapter one without doing it justice. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I guess that's all we have, <laughs> and we'll save the rest for for next time. Okay, so this Monday coming up on The Christian Atheist, again, you'll be continuing your series. I think you'll be on episode part seven, seven, part seven right. of that. And right. I assume we'll only go to part eight, yeah. but we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I doubted you tonight on our walk about that fact. You never trust me. <laughs> <laughs> so don't forget, if you'd like to read it yourself, The Everlasting Man, or listen to The Entire Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton, read by John, those links will be in the description to read it yourself or to listen to it without commentary on Simple Gifts. And you can also listen to it on YouTube. If you do listen to it on YouTube, we'd love for you to subscribe, and we would really appreciate that. And if you're interested in knowing more about The Christian Atheist, be sure to check out the link to John's book in the description. It's called Through the Looking Glass, The Imploding of an Atheist Professor's Worldview. It's riveting. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, Jen. And as always, if you have the means, why not buy us a cup of coffee? There's a link to that in the description as well. And we thank you so much for taking the time to listen to us. We appreciate you and hope you have a great rest of your week. And we'll talk to you next time. Thank you, my love, for all of your hard work this week. You have put in many, many hours, both on photography and in preparation for all of our podcasting. I love you more than life itself. And you've done an equal amount of work, and I love you more than life itself. We'll see you all next week. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.